Oh, Father, we lift up our prayers of thankfulness and honor and glory unto your great name this morning. We declare that you are holy and worthy of praise. You and you alone have, through your perfect predestined plan, provided salvation for every blood-bought believer in this room. You alone have led us, Lord, awakening our eyes to see. Lord, quickening our deadness of being unto new life in Christ, unto the mount of thy redeeming love. And we read of this in the great book of Hebrews. Whereas of old they trembled with fear, we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We find here in your holy scriptures, Lord, the precious blood that we just sang about. It was the shed blood of our mediator, Jesus Christ, that purchased for us eternal redemption. We thank you that there is a mediator for us, that you satisfied the debt for our sin, and that you have given us reason to praise, reason to live, reason to join our voices together and sing unto you and praise unto you, hallowed be your name. This morning as we open your scriptures, I pray that you would open our hearts. I pray that in our ears you would do a miracle of hearing, so that which is foolishness to the unbeliever would become the wisdom of God to us. I pray that you would soften our affections to love and appreciate the great gospel of Jesus Christ, our Lord, so that we don't soon forget, but instead apply and champion, Lord, proclaim and herald your truths this week. If you do this, Lord, we recognize it is the use of this, or the Spirit's use of these means alone that accomplishes such a thing. So there is no glory for the presenter of this message and no glory do the hearer, but only do your holy name. So we honor you and praise you and thank you for this opportunity. We pray that you would multiply it for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. What a great privilege to open up the Scriptures together this morning and to read of our great salvation. Today is Communion Sunday and we'll continue in our Hebrews series. To do so, turn with me, if you would, in your Scriptures to Hebrews chapter 9. Our primary text today will be Hebrews 9, 23 through 28, the remainder of the chapter. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. The title of this morning's message is Christ Appearing. And we find the term appear at least four times in this chapter and three times in our verses today. There are, that is to say, in the author of Hebrews' conception of the gospel or the elements of Christ fulfilling the gospel, three different appearings, if you will, presentings of Christ in history and before the Father that are significant to our salvation. And so we read of them today. If you're able, stand with me if you would with your Bible open to Hebrews 9 and follow me as I declare God's holy and infallible word. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Verse 27, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. The concluding thoughts that our author leaves us with in Hebrews chapter 9, in this chapter anyways, 
are developments from two verses I would submit to you that precede it. These thoughts, which are expanded and expounded a bit, seem to find their root or their, uh, their point, their seed origin in a couple of verses, verses 11 and 12 in the same chapter. And thus we have here, uh, as is often the case, a repetition and an expansion of basic ideas in the text. So read, or follow me as I read these two verses in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verses 11 and 12, and you'll see the similarity, I trust. But when Christ appeared, and that's our key word this morning, Christ appearing, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. As we read these words, we find in the rest of the chapter that our author goes on to describe three senses in which Christ is uniquely or was uniquely manifest in the complete work of redemption. This is connected to the idea or the word appearing. This word is translated appearing these four times in my version here, but there are actually three individual Greek words that all have similar meanings in our text today, verses 23 and 28. And those meanings include the following. What does it mean, in other words, to appear, or when the author uses that word? Well, it means to show oneself or to come to view, to come into view, into perspective, to be manifest, to be fully known, to be displayed for those who maybe previously were not aware now to pay attention. Also, it can mean to make manifest, visible, or known what was once hidden, unknown, to be made visible, to be realized. It does not uh, mean that there wasn't a plan, but instead, in fact, the fulfillment, the fulfillment or the fruition of that plan has now come into view. There is an appearing of Christ in His work in Calvary that came as a surprise to the unsuspecting, but it was no surprise to God. And as Christ's work unfolded in the gospel and on Calvary, we find the connections to what had been prefigured and prophesied tying together perfectly, which what now appeared to us to be full, manifest, visible fulfillment of what had been spoken of in type and shadowy form of old. Thus, appearing means to be seen or to show oneself, to appear, to be manifest again. This uh, third use of the word, is also common in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. In Luke 24, 24, Acts 9, 17, 13, 31, Acts 26, 16, the word appear is used over and over again to describe the uh, event of Jesus' resurrection, appearing to many, appearing to those you know, uh, that were gathered here, appearing uh, to those uh, for the, uh, a n- number of different disciples and, and sometimes in small groups and sometimes in rather large ones in that 40 days between his resurrection and ascension. So in a similar way, Jesus Christ appears to us in his word. We may lament the fact that we weren't alive in the generation of Christ's visible, manifest, resurrected form in this life. We may think of ourselves as less than privileged because we weren't able to see with our own eyes Christ appearing to his disciples, such as we have it recorded in the Gospels or the book of Acts. The author of Hebrews is quick to correct that thinking and that perspective, however. He is sharing with us that it is just as valuable that Christ would appear to you in his scriptures as it would be to your very eyes. In fact, Christ appeared to the eyes of many, did he not? And there, you know, the default setting of humanistic man is that if I can see it, I will believe. That proved, in fact, to not be the case. There were those who saw a myriad of Christ's miracles. There were those that saw him do things that no one except God in flesh could possibly do. And they did not turn and follow him, ultimately speaking. But many of them, in fact, turned away in his darkest hour. Though Christ had appeared to him in one sense, them in one sense, he had not appeared in the fullest sense. Praise be to God that through his Spirit's use of the Word of God, When it is proclaimed in our hearing, a miracle can take place so that we can see the Lord. 
He can appear to us in the scope of His redemptive work as we read of what He has done in the course of redemptive history to secure our salvation. You know, today it strikes me if you pick up, uh, say, I don't know, a compendium by Life magazine or an encyclopedia or maybe a time issue that summarizes the great events of the end of the year, you will see uh, more, you know, you'll invariably see kind of a record, a chronology of things that our culture considers significant. Take a 10, 20, maybe even a century year span, and what will you have? You'll have a big story on D-Day. You'll have the moon landing. You'll have, you know, closer to our time, 9-11, or maybe the fall of the Berlin Wall. And what we do in this historical record, as we write our own history, is we have a set of values in our mind, things that we think are very important, that shape the destiny and the consciousness of a people. And we write those down because we think they are significant. Well, as we look at these different ways that we record our own history, we can see room for a critical analysis because the Bible records different events entirely than those that we might consider to be the most significant in our lifetime. In other words, a corrective word from Hebrews for us today is, if any of those things I just mentioned to you or maybe the goals that you have met in the course of your life, I don't care if it's something as valuable as even just you know, having healthy, a healthy family or achieving a particular career goal, if any of those things are in competition with the events that shaped your spiritual destiny that have to do with the gospel, there is a reordering of affections and priorities that is needful. Anything else in history should be infinitely lower on the scale of value than Christ appearing in time, God in flesh, incarnate, Christ appearing before the Father, satisfying the terms of mediation to make communion possible between a sinner and a holy God, and what we look forward to, yet future right now, Christ's second coming, where fully manifest redemption will be our experience when we are caught up into glory. That's the message and heart of Hebrews 9, 23 through 28. Let me give you a heading and let's consider a little more deeply by three points under that heading. Three appearances of Christ in the scope of salvation. Three appearings, if you will. Number one, in the presence of God. Christ appears in the presence of God. We find this in verses 23 and 24. And perhaps we can label this appearing as intercessory mediation. Praying on our behalf, representing us, going between. Second appearance in our text today, at the end of the ages. In the scope of salvation, Christ appears at the end of the ages. And this is redemptive incarnation. Christ appearing in the flesh to accomplish the work that will secure our soul's salvation. And thirdly this morning, the, the appearance to save those who are eagerly waiting. And this would be second coming. Consider again our text today under the title or under the heading in the presence of God, intercessory mediation. Notice this first appearing in Hebrews 23 and 24 that the author refers to. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ has entered into heaven itself, to appear at the presence of God on our behalf. This is intercessory mediation. This is going between, making peace between the sinner and a holy God. On our behalf, our high priest has entered into that place of meeting. He has satisfied the conditions in order that we might be in good standing. And more so than any of the fallible high priests of old, we're just a type and shadow of the work of Christ. What he accomplishes opens a door for us to follow. When the high priest was privileged to enter into the holiest of places in the old covenant, it was him alone who could do so, and that but once a year. We read of that in our text, do we not? These preparations having thus been made in Hebrews 9, 6, these priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, that is the holiest place, that represented 
the apex of communion with the holy God. Into that second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. What we find in the broader scope of Revelation in Hebrews, the high priest of high priests, Jesus Christ our Lord, he goes not once a year. He goes not offering temporal remediation for sins like the blood of bulls and goats, but he goes offering his own blood and he secures entrance for all who are in him. And so when we look forward to our final point this morning, the second coming, what are we looking forward to? When we are caught up in the air, however that happens on that final day, when the second coming finally arrives, we will be following our high priest into the holiest place, into perfect, satisfied relationship with the holy God to appreciate, to enjoy, to bask in His glory forever, to, to find the fulfillment of our created design to the nth degree as we worship Him forever without end. This is what we have to look forward to because of the intercessory mediation of Jesus Christ. Think as we uh, go back through this text, notice some of the correlations between the Old Covenant and the New. If we back up to verse 17 in chapter 9, for, or 19, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he, that's Moses, took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That being the context, we have our verses today. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. As we look at this cleansing and this commissioning, consecration, preparation, we think of it as an inaugural event. If we turn back, we did this last time we were in our text in Hebrews 9. If you were to do a little study in Exodus 24, say around verses 3 through 8, you can find the record in the law of this very thing to which the author refers. And what happened was, the worship order was in place. And in order for every T to be crossed and I to be dotted, in order for the law to be satisfied down to the jot and tittle, there had to be certain events that would take place to consecrate, to prepare, to provide that picture of godly order. Appropriate measures had to be taken, and these were the inaugural events. In other words, the worship or what the tabernacle represented, represented was not effective until certain conditions were met. These conditions had to happen. There had to be shedding of blood. Without the shedding of blood, there was no forgiveness of sins. Not even in a temporal sense would there be any meaningful activity taking place without the element of sacrifice. And in the same way, our salvation, what Christ accomplished, it was ushered into fulfillment by inaugural events. Christ had to be born of a virgin. He had to live and be subject to temptations such as we, fulfilling the law. He had to go to the cross. His blood had to be shed. And that blood was the corresponding sacrifice that purified, if you will, the so that the conditions were met, the heavenly places, so that everything would be appropriate and in order and salvation could be secured for God's people. There is a correspondence thus between the two. However, the in, there is infinitely more promised and fulfilled and sufficient in Christ's work. The inaugural events that took place in the incarnation where Christ satisfied all the conditions of the law, died as a perfect sacrifice, and shed His blood to secure our redemption, paying the price of God's wrath for our sin, were the initiation, was the initiation of a whole new gospel reality. Now because of what he had done, we look forward 
to perfect communion with Him. Secondly, under in the presence of God, Christ appearing in the presence of God, we have a kind of type, anti-type uh, idea that continues. The definition of anti-type is a person or thing that is foreshadowed or represented by a type or a symbol. And this is just a further development of what I've been sharing with you. The types of the Old Covenant are fulfilled in their antitypes in the New. The high priest of old and the Levitical order and in Aaron is fulfilled in the antitype Jesus Christ, the high priest of the New Covenant. In the sacrifices, the Paschal Lamb, the blood of bulls and goats that we've been reading of, the antitype is the precious shed blood of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord in the New. This helps us to understand this language in verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So the heavenly things would correspond to what? What I've just shared with you. The presence of God now open and available to those who are represented by the high priest. Secondly, the better sacrifices. That corresponds to the shed blood that we read of that was sprinkled on the tent, the vessels of people, nearly everything purified with blood. The better sacrifices, you might wonder why it's in plural. It's just because it corresponds to the plural before. But in fact, what it substantively represents is the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The better sacrifice that satisfied the conditions of worship was Jesus Christ's own shed blood. He sacrificed himself, we read in verse 26, when that language of the second appearing occurs in the text. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. If we turn over briefly to Revelation 21, we can find another example of type and anti-type correspondence. This is one of the uh, sophisticated realities of revelation from a holy God. The in-depth connections and the beautiful train of theological truth that is threaded all through the scriptures, we, can certainly uh, we could certainly never plumb all of its depths. But let's touch on just one more text this morning to demonstrate some of the correspondence that we see in the language of redemption. Revelation 21, 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. He measured the city with its rod 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls 144 cubits by human measurement. Goes on to describe the beautiful uh, garnishings of the jewels and the foundations uh, of this great city that's pictured here. Verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And this city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And it continues. It says in verse 27, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, but anyone who does what is detestable or false, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there, let me highlight for you just two type and anti-type correspondence. First of all, the Holy of Holies. As far as I know, in the architecture that was divinely commissioned for the people to construct, the only place that was equidistant four ways was a perfect cube in the Old Covenant was the Holy of Holies. Its length, its height, its depth, and so on were all equal, equidistant. In the same way, we see, though the exponentially bigger in the picture in Revelation as we read, 21, that the New Jerusalem has the same schematics. It's proportional, it's a cube, it's the same dimensions, all three directions. And so you see something here then in the, in the pictorial language, do you not? That what was symbolized in the holy place of old is fulfilled in the new Jerusalem. Now there is no need of a temple there. The old temple then being the type is fulfilled in the antitype of Jesus, our Lord, who shines and His presence is enough uh, to satisfy all the conditions of the temple. And this is not one small place 
but instead the, the entire environment is consumed by these realities. And so we have here something to uh, feast our minds upon as we search the scriptures. In our text, there is this reference to things made with hands, not in the holy places made with hands. The hands referred to would be represented by Moses constructing the tabernacle, uh, Solomon constructing the temple, Zerubbabel rebuilding the temple, Herod improving the temple. These were holy places made with hands. They are just the copies of the true things. But in heaven itself, such as we have in Revelation 21 and prophesied here in our text, something happened in the work of redemption. Christ appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. He didn't go into the holy of holies on this earth made with hands. He went into the holy of holies in heaven and he presented himself. He appeared before God himself, God the Father, satisfying the terms and conditions of our salvation. In the presence of God, when he appeared, he appeared, as it says, on our behalf. Just like the priests of old would appear on behalf of the people on the day of atonement. In Leviticus 16, 32 through 33, there's a record of this event. And also we read the corresponding uh, reality in chapter 8 of Hebrews, verses 2 through 5. We'll back up to 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. So you might ask, what, is, what are some of the differences between that which was the, you know, the holy place made with hands and that of the heavenly place. And this is a difference right here. In the heavenly holy of holies, if you will, Jesus Christ entered, he appeared before the Father and was seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a reference to the authority, power, and presence of Almighty God the Father. A minister in the holy places, again, speaking of Jesus in verse 2, in the what? True tent. There's a reference to the type, the tabernacle. But here is the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Again, not a holy place made with hands, but one that the Lord himself has erected. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, for when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And then verse 6, But as it is, Jesus has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So here we see several times referenced in the text that that holy place of meeting with a holy God, was in the heavens itself. That was the true tent. That was the place and the point of reconciliation. And Christ appeared there into heaven itself. He appeared in the presence of God on our behalf. Think about it for a moment. You're back in the Old Testament, and the priest, you're gathered maybe in a place where, you know, near the temple, and you see the priest walk by. And you know in just a few moments, he will don that, that, those vestments. He will put on that breastplate. And all of the stones that represent your people will be, will be there and on his shoulders again. And so uh, symbolized on his heart and actually carried in with him was the request, the plight, the condition of you as a people. And that picture to those enlightened by faith, would be powerful. They would know that even though I can't go in there, this man represents me, and I can see that stone that represents my tribe. And as he goes before, I trust that God will hear him and that this high priest will satisfy the conditions so that I can feel assured of salvation, that I can be in right standing with him. Now we think of the joy and the peace that might flood the heart in the Old Covenant, under these conditions, and then we think of our Messiah. Jesus Christ, is na our names, as we sing sometimes, are graven on His hands. My name is written on His heart. 
I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. As long as my high priest, with my name written on his hands and on his heart, is standing in the true tent not made with hands, in that place of reconciliation, pleading on my behalf, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No sin of mine, no corrupt you know, idea from hell, no newfangled notion is going to sway my resolve. Why? Because I am in Christ. I'm transformed. I'm a new creature. I'm, re- I'm born again. A powerful thing has taken place. And my high priest has so far exceeded those of old that they are reduced to a shadowy type and a symbol. But what Christ has fulfilled in His appearing before the Lord is truly amazing, beyond our ultimate comprehension. But as we see and appreciate a little more, may we worship Him for what He has done. Second appearance. First was, again, in the presence of God. Christ appears before the presence of God, making mediation, intercession for us. Second appearance in the text is at the end of the ages. And here we have a reference to the incarnation. Let's read verses 25 and 26. Now was it to offer him, nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For when he would have had to suffer, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared, there's our key word, once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. This is a reference to the incarnation. When God became man, Emmanuel, God with us, when Christ was born, when Christ fulfilled His work here on this earth, something that all history had been waiting for took place at the fullness of time. This once-for-all moment happened in history real recorded history, and it changed the direction. It changed fundamentally the terms and conditions for us as His people eternally. At the end of the ages, at the apex of time, at the perfect moment, Christ appeared on this earth, walking in the sandals of an average person, wearing the garments that His neighbors would recognize, speaking in a language they can hear, subject to all these various conditions of humanity. But something powerful was going on. This was no ordinary event. This was extraordinary beyond all human comprehension. Because in so doing, His work would culminate in the sacrifice of Himself. And when Christ appeared on this earth, He did so to make propitiation for our sins at the fullness of time, the end of the ages. Consider once for all. This statement is powerful. Once for all at the end of the ages. There is an exclusivity, exclusivity about the salvation purchased, pro- procured in Jesus Christ that will never suffer a substitute or replication though men in their foolishness try. Think of it. Is there any other way? No. There is one way, truth, and life. Is there any other possible avenue, shortcut, or roundabout path that I may take to be in good standing with the Lord other than the high priest? Well, have you known anyone who can go into the heavenly tent and make intercession for you? Is there anyone born uh, as a mere human that could go into the place of reconciliation with the Holy Father into that tent not made with hands, to the holiest of places in the heaven and plead on your behalf? Moses couldn't do it. The record serves to illustrate. Aaron couldn't do it. The most righteous of all the saints that are listed in Hebrews 11, none of them could do it. Why? Because none of them were God in flesh. None of them were Jesus Christ. None of them were without sin. None of them had free access as the Son of God and before the Father with His ear and audience to make propitiation and intercession for His people. This once and for all nature is one that we must remember because the glory of Christ hinges on our confession 
and our conviction that there is once and for all satisfied in Christ alone our salvation. As we think of all of the amalgamations of man's uh, self-made and styled religions, we find these ideas corrupted over and over again. This verse is a nail in the coffin for any who would in the day that Hebrews was written seek to return to the comforts of what they knew uh, you know, in the Jewish Old Testament uh, culture and, and uh, worship order and so on. There are those who wanted to regress probably because tradition, the familiarity of it, what you've known, what you've grown up with, can be something of a psychological crutch. It can make you feel a little bit better, more secure. But these, the hearers of Hebrews, were not to judge truth by their feelings. They were to hear the Word of God and take note that Christ Himself had appeared in time. And so what blasphemy would it be to go back to some priesthood where a mere sinner represents you? The veil had been torn in the holiest places, symbolizing that that order was finished, that God had, was no longer going to use that means to intervene on behalf of His people. But Christ, who went beyond the veil, who is the anchor and who we follow in has, been, has superseded now the office of high priest and makes intercession for us as a perfect fulfillment of what was pictured of old. In Catholic theology, there is what they call a re-presentation of a real sacrifice, though unbloody, of Christ in the Mass. That is to say, in formal Catholic doctrine, every time the Eucharist is present, it you know, some miracle happens whereas, and wherein it becomes the actual blood and body of Christ. This is anathema to the true faith of the Scriptures. Why? Because we, as, we read, as we read right here, there was a once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ that satisfied sufficiently the conditions of the forgiveness of sin for all the elect for all time. Let us not pretend that He needs to do it again. Let us not pretend that anyone else could come anywhere close to accomplishing such a thing. It was the priests of old that would go in over and over again, that would offer sacrifice upon sacrifice. Why? Because they weren't sufficient. But when Christ went in, He went in once for all, again it says in 9.12, into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Brothers and sisters, we're coming up on 500-year anniversary of the uh, Reformation. And as far as I can tell, just keeping my ear to the pulse of ecumen uh, you know, ecumenical culture, different churches and movements and so on, the lines between truth and falsehood are becoming more and more blurry in our age. Most people don't know what the difference is between really the Protestants and the Catholics, and maybe there's some history there and we just kind of do things different. Sure, there's some surface-level differences, but probably most people think substantively, hey, they're Christians, we're Christians too. Be alert. Pay attention to your scriptures. Understand what are the specific conditions of salvation because men will come along in this day and age and seek to blur the lines and deceive many. Remember what we have read in Matthew 24? In an age of lawlessness, what is an age of lawlessness? A day and age, an era where the lines get blurred, where distinctions become less important than community, where clear black and white lines and definitions become less important than unity. Paul said there must be factions among you for the truth's sake. This isn't to say that we don't plead with hearts of compassion for all who are lost, even for those who think they're saved that are trusting another idea of, of a Messiah or a sacrifice that isn't. Christ alone, we need to plead for them, but we also need to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Don't fall prey to these deceptive words to blur the distinctions. They are sharp and true, correct and accurate and piercing, dividing asunder between soul and spirit in the scripture itself. None of the analogies that the Bible itself employs to explain and describe the truth of God have anything to do with fuzziness or blurred lines. They're sharp and distinct and true. Remember, it is Jesus Christ, our once-for-all sacrifice, and nothing else will do. 
He is the only one who satisfied the conditions at the end of the ages to secure our redemption. Speaking of the end of the ages, what could this mean? Well, I submit to you that the Bible presents to us in this text, there is a reference, a philosophy of history. There is from the foundation of the world to the end of the ages as one significant block of time. Then there is another significant block of time from the end of the ages to the second coming. This is how history is divided even in our text. It says in verse 26, For then he would have had Christ to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. All of the ages that preceded the incarnation, the coming of Christ, they were the symbolic age. It was an age of, uh, of darkness, if you will, or uh, uh, where there was more shrouded uh, understanding. The revelation of Christ in flesh was not as clear. But when he came and when he preached the word of the kingdom and when he accomplished redemption, a change, a fundamental hinge point in history was reached and it ushered in a new era, if you will. And that new era is from the end of the ages, if you will, to the second coming, even as we read. So Christ, verse 28, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Again, we live in an era. We live in a context, a zeitgeist, a culture, a prevalent worldviews that swirl around the mindset of the average American doesn't see much purpose or order, direction, theme, shape, intent uh, to history at all. But we must recognize something different so that we might shine a light into the nihilism that our culture is increasingly embracing. History is not a cause and effect relationship of mere molecules bumping into each other. History is the work of God and His providence writing and with accuracy and specificity down to every last detail what He has ordained from the foundation of the world to take place in time. And we can understand the meaning of history when we realize the significant hinge point events. What are they? It wasn't when Columbus discovered you know, this continent, not that he discovered anything. You know, it wasn't when man landed on the moon, which I mentioned before, which, you know, more or less symbolizes the apex of human achievement where, look what we can do, we can go to space. And we're so proud of ourselves, we don't even think about the one who spoke these worlds into being in the first place. What idiots are we? Just ants crying out that we've, you know, that we're responsible for the skyscrapers being built. No, God is responsible. He is the architect. He is the shaper of this universe and history. And we, when we look to the Word, we find the reference points to understand history's significance. In a sense, there was an age that led up in anticipation to Christ that ended when He came. Everything that was godly pointed forward to it. And at that moment, when He fulfilled that great messianic prophecy, when salvation was accomplished, then the age that was ushered in is to glorify Him, to bask in the benefits and seek to display the fruit of loving Him and walking in Him and embrace, embracing the gospel. Finally, at the, under the end of the ages, this redemptive incarnation, we have Christ offering himself as a sacrifice. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In the book of John, this act of self-sacrifice is commonly misunderstood as a, a Jesus basically, you know, he becomes the victim of the evil agents around him. And uh, he didn't fight back because he was really nice. And he was really passive about the government structures that were there and all that. And, uh, and I, I like nice guys like that. That's basically the attitude that a lot of us have of Jesus in our day and age. But when we turn to John chapter 10, we find this self-giving to be something else entirely. In verses 17 and 18 we read, for this reason the Father loves me, Jesus is speaking, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. 
This charge I have received from my Father. You see the authoritative purpose in Christ's work on Calvary? He was not a pawn in history's machine. He was the architect of its very events. Christ laid down his life of his own authority. He took it back up again by his own power and authority. And when we, when we see Jesus suffering under the tyranny of false accusation and the empire of that day, we don't see forces that are stronger than what God would do. We see them being used inadvertently as tools in his hand to accomplish the greatest miracle in all of history, the satisfaction of our sins in the shed blood of the only sacrifice that was worthy. Finally this morning and in closing, we have our third appearance in the text. The third appearance of Christ is to save those eagerly waiting. Eagerly waiting His second coming, verses 27 and 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear, there's our word, a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. We see a connection between death and consequences. Here, just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, I'll never forget a conversation I had with a man who was dying. It was about five years, or I'm sorry, five days before he passed away. And as a man that I respected, he was served in the community on a number of, you know, noble efforts trying to make our little town a better place. And I asked him, do you have the assurance that when you die, that you will be in the presence of God? He said, you know, I'm not religious like you. He said, but I have done my best with what I know to do. This is why I pursue this and serve on this committee and done that. And um, my hope is, that in the end, all those things that maybe God will look at those and I'll be all right. And, you know, I told him, I said his name and I said, you know, my brother and I respect you a lot. In fact, in many ways, you've done more good for this community than the both of us combined have so far. But there's coming a day when you will pass away very shortly and you won't, be in, and you won't have to impress me. I won't be your judge. You will stand in, in, before a different judge entirely. A judge who demands absolute perfection because he himself is perfect. And the only thing that will be allowed in his presence is that which has been purified by Christ's own blood. Only in Jesus' sacrifice is there sufficient payment for your sins. And we talked about this very verse. Just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear sins, the sins of many will appear a second time. I don't know where that man resides today, but if you're in Christ, I know where you will reside on that day. There's a connection between death and consequences. When we die, we will face the judge of all the universe. And those who will be declared innocent are those who are wearing the white robes of Jesus Christ's own righteousness and only His blood can secure that condition. But for everyone else, they will hear that ominous echo as they careen toward the lake of fire, depart from me, I never knew you, you workers of lawlessness. And that great cosmic bifurcating event will take place. Well, just as when we die, there's consequences, there's something that is conditional upon death, namely a reckoning. So there is something connected to Christ's death as well. Just as it's appointed for man to die once and after that comes the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Christ died and that death was effective. It accomplished something. So as surely, the author is saying, as you will die and then, and, and then move beyond this state one day, so... What was promised and conditional upon Christ's death is yours if you are in Him today. And among those things is a glorious future, an appearance of Christ again. Remember I told you that God is the architect of history, that the Bible gives us a philosophy of history to understand where we are and what He's doing in it? Well, history is marked by divine intrusions, is it not? 
This world wouldn't be here if He hadn't created it in the first place. Man would have no hope of relationship with Him if God hadn't made that intrusion uh, prefigured in Abraham and all the other covenantal leaders of the Old Covenant, making opportunity for His revelation to be heard by man so that we might hear the gospel, how to be in relationship with Him. There would be no reason for us to gather. We would not be here today if Christ had not intruded into history at the Incarnation, if He had not gone to the cross. Well, we are looking forward to one more intrusion. That is the second coming, the end of this eschaton. And when all of the elect have been reaped into the storehouses of glory, Christ will return. And He will return for those who look for Him, who recognize that they live in light of His appearing in the future. They know that He will be visibly manifest in all His glory, all His history-conquering, shaping power when He comes again on that final day. They know He will not come as the suffering servant pictured in Isaiah 53, but He will come as a victorious champion with a parade of His exploits, trailing ad infinitum behind Him as He comes to claim his own, and declare an end to all sin and wrap up finally once and for all for God's glory all of history such that no one will be able to to argue or to do anything except bow and confess that He is Lord. Christ will appear again. He will appear to those and to save those who are eagerly waiting. You might ask yourself the question, is salvation contingent upon Christ's second coming? If you turn over to Romans 8, we find the answer. The picture of salvation in Scripture is comprehensive. It doesn't just refer to our justification, though that is foundational, and no one will be saved who is not justified. But there is more to expect. In the full scope, that is, fully manifest redemption or salvation, we find in Romans 8, 29, that those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And those uh, to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And that last stage, that link in the golden chain, if you will, corresponds to the second coming to that moment of Christ's return when the living and the dead are caught up with Him and, and salvation is fully manifest and the ark of redemption is utterly complete and we are with Him in His presence in perfect communion forever. Praise the Lord. This morning, we have something to hold us over, if you will. We have a milestone that is commemorated in these elements right here. As I mentioned, when Christ intruded into history and was incarnate, it was by the means of that very blood and flesh, broken and spilled, that you and I are saved today if you are in Him, if you know Christ as your Savior and Lord. So this is what we remember. As we look to these elements today, we see the, history, we see the hinge of history before us. We recognize at the moment that Christ's body was broken and His blood was shed, that the end of the ages had come upon us, and now we look forward. As surely as He has appeared in the flesh, He will appear again to catch us up into glory. And as surely as He has appeared to us in salvation, so He has appeared before the Father, making intercession for us. Christ has said in Matthew 26, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. In verse 27, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, he says, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it, new with you in my Father's kingdom. And the kingdom of God is upon us, brothers and sisters. And today you are invited, if you are a believer, to come and take of these elements today. And as you do so, be mindful that Christ and Christ alone has appeared to work the great 
incredible uh, acts of history that secured your own salvation. And it is by His blood and by His body that we are saved. Let us transition in prayer. Dear Jesus, we thank You that You have come in time to save us. Before us, we have pictured Your body and blood. We thank You, Lord, that You came and You offered Yourself as a sacrifice for our sin. I pray that as we approach Your table today, that we would search our hearts. I pray that we would confess, Lord Jesus, any unbelief that has given way to sin, that does not acknowledge this fact, and keep it, Lord Jesus, at the forefront of our minds. I pray, Lord, that we would remember and proclaim, Lord Jesus, as a consequence of this service today, the great work that you have done intruding into history and accomplishing the work of Calvary. I pray, Lord, that you would increase, Lord, our love for one another, our communion even with each other, as we focus our attention on the God who saved us. I thank you, Lord, for this time that we have. I pray that you would bless it and multiply it for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray. So this morning, in the moments we have left, if you are a believer, if you are a Christian, if God has saved you, and only if He has, the communion table is open to you. So those of you seated in the rear, I invite you to come down the aisle first, and you can serve yourselves. Once we're all seated, then I'll return and we'll partake together.
Hallelujah. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 23, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us partake of the bread this morning. The apostle continues, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's drink the cup together. Hallelujah. We pray, Father, that today, as we have partaken at your table, as we have received from your word, and as we now move on, even in this service, to fellowship with the beloved, I pray, Lord, that you would stir us to faithfulness, to good works, to glorify you. I pray, Lord, that we would live in light of your appearings that we would be overjoyed and thankful for every opportunity to worship, to fellowship, to declare, to proclaim the news that you have satisfied the conditions of salvation in your incarnation, in history, in this earth. Lord, I pray that you would provide for us a reminder in today's meal so that when we are tempted, Lord Jesus, by the old man and the besetting areas of sin that come back around to distract and tempt, that we would look to Christ, whose blood was shed for our redemption, and we would find in Him freedom, holiness. I pray, Lord, that as we leave this place later on this day, that You would equip us, Lord, to shine as lights and salt in this earth, this world, Lord, that is oblivious to the truth, that is plainly available for them to see, even in creation itself, I pray that you would stir your people so that through their words, through their lives, might be a reminder of the God who was and is and is to come, and the God who satisfied payment for their sin and the blood of His own Son. Thank you, Lord, for this time that we've had. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would guard it so that we might be honoring to you. Thank you for your glory, for your glory and namesake. We lift up our requests in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Just a couple things to share with you as we transition here. You probably noticed the tables on your way in. We would like to continue just fellowshipping together. And so we have a bunch of food lined up. If you didn't bring something, please stay anyways, because I guarantee there'll be enough to go around. 
We'd like to just continue in the atmosphere of fellowship and worship of the Lord and sharing a meal together. So you're invited. So please stick around for that. just want to thank Donnie for all the extra effort coming early and preparing turkey and whatnot. And for all the rest of you, thank you for bringing uh, dishes and so on as well. Just encourage you to worship the Lord with your tithes and offerings. There's a box labeled for that to your left as you leave. Continue to pray for those among us who are suffering. And it's just great to get a report week by week that John Ingebretson, after that horrible head trauma fall, is doing better. So praise the Lord for that. We're so thankful that he is recovering well. He's able to walk with help and to communicate. And a lot of the kind of confused behavior has dissipated now. So Praise the Lord for that. It's just an amazing answer to prayer. Just continue to pray for uh, the outstanding adoption, a little sun night and stuff, and continue to celebrate the Lord's faithfulness and bringing Titus to the Ingushes. And if you haven't got a chance to meet the new babies and adopted ones, just encourage you to do that. And lift up your brothers and sisters in prayer too and all these different things. Keep praying for our brother Stanley. He's been uh, suffering quite a bit from the effects of his cancer and his stroke and so We're praying that the Lord would raise him up. So God bless you. And uh, maybe I'll just pray for the food as we move to the other room. Dear Lord, I thank you for providing us, Lord Jesus, not only sustenance for our soul, but sustenance for our bodies. And I pray, Lord Jesus, as we move, Lord, to enjoy a meal together, that you would remind us that it is by your hand and provision that we enjoy this meal today. Help us, Lord Jesus, as we share with one another to glorify you in our speech and in all that we do. I thank you, God, for bringing us together and for the great privilege of worshiping you in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.